in our personal stories, we all have chapters that we would prefer weren't part of it. You know, memories uh, and reminders that easily stir up guilt. I know I do. I have many of those kinds of chapters. And I could give you several examples of why that's true for me. And some of you could give examples of why that's true for me too. Uh, Some of you could do that easily. I'll ask you not to. And I'm sure pretty much all of you can say the same. That yeah, I've got chapters in my story that I wish weren't part of it. I have things that come back at me that stir up guilt and it's just about more than I can take sometimes. I think we, we all are in that same boat. But as we've seen the last two weeks in this series, even though that's part of our story, with God and by His grace, it doesn't have to be the end of our story. It's really possible to experience the comeback uh, from even the worst kind of failure imaginable. You take the worst failure in your life, you look at that, and when you're tempted to despair and to, to be down under the weight of that again, you need to remember that with God, by His grace, you can come back from anything. Uh, nothing is too much for Him. Who you were doesn't have to be who you are. What you did doesn't have to be what you do. It doesn't have to be. That does not have to define you any longer. And don't let the enemy tell you that it does. Because that's what he wants. We have a real enemy who wants us to think, well, who, who I was, that, that's who I still am. And that's going to just constantly define me. It's always going to define me. And I'm doomed to repeat the mistakes of my failure. What I did, I'm just destined to do over and over and over. No, no. It's a lie of the enemy. That is not what is true for you in Jesus Christ. And the person we're going to talk about today uh, may possibly be the most significant example of that out of all the people that we consider in this series, which is saying a lot, considering who we've already talked about, who we'll continue uh, to talk about before we're done with the series. And that man is Manasseh. Manasseh. And Manasseh grew up uh, under Hezekiah. Hezekiah was his father. And King Hezekiah was one of the few examples of a good king after the kingdom of Israel split. Uh, After Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel split into a northern kingdom with Israel and a southern kingdom with Judah. And they remained that way. And they warred against one another. And both kingdoms produced example after example of wicked, evil king, with a few exceptions to that along the way of good kings that still followed God, followed his law, and were righteous. Hezekiah was one of them. And Hezekiah was an incredible king. Um, He had done away with the wickedness of his predecessors. He purged the land of idol worship. He brought back great, sweeping spiritual and moral reform. He instituted proper worship of God. He brought Israel, he brought specifically Judah, back to God. And so he obviously would have been a godly father to Manasseh. He would have trained him and and taught him in godly ways according to God's word. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Micah were prophets during Hezekiah's ministry. And the law was something that was constantly upheld and honored and exalted. So that would have been Manasseh's experience. That was his childhood. And Hezekiah definitely left a godly legacy for Manasseh that he could have embraced, that could have been his. Unfortunately, though, Manasseh's story starts off with a very, very dark chapter indeed. And it's that dark chapter that we're going to look at first. Second Chronicles 33, 1-11 is this chapter, the first chapter really of 
of Manasseh's kingship, and unfortunately, it takes up the majority of his story, this dark chapter. Second Chronicles 33, 1-11, the Word of God says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Parents, can you imagine if your 12-year-old was given ultimate authority, or you, when you were 12 years old, what that would have been like? Things wouldn't go well, would they? No. No, it's like disaster. So he was 12 years old when he became king. Now, he was a co-ruler with his, his aging father. His father was still alive, but he was, he was aging. There was uh, little that he was still able to accomplish on his own. So um, Manasseh was installed as a co-regent with his father, uh, righteous Hezekiah. Okay, And this 12-year-old ruler, Manasseh, uh, actually reigned, it says, 55 years in Jerusalem. Unfortunately, though, again, most of those years were not good years. Verse 2 tells us why. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites, like the Canaanites. Think of Joshua and his conquest and, and the Canaanites and all those evil, wicked people that God ordered Israel to just totally wipe out because he knew their influence would corrupt Israel. And so what Manasseh does, instead of following his father's example, righteous, godly example, he decides he's going to imitate all the wicked practices of those types of nations And then we see some of the details of that. Verse 3. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had torn down. So Hezekiah tears down these high places that are constructed to worship and praise these false gods. These horrible, wicked, really demons is what they were. These high places that were constructed to honor them, Hezekiah tears them all down. He says, no, we don't want any part of that. We need to get rid of these corrupting, horrible, blasphemous influences. Let's get rid of them. Let's cut these places down. Let's tear it all away. But Manasseh rebuilds them. And he reestablished the altars for the Baals. He made Asherah poles. And he bowed in worship to all the stars in the sky and serve them. And then it just continues. It gets even worse. Verse 4, He built altars in the Lord's temple where the Lord had said, Jerusalem is where my name will remain forever. He built altars to the whole heavenly host in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. So he, he goes into the temple, the holy place of God's presence, And he does the unthinkable. He actually builds altars to these false gods, to the heavenly host, in the temple, the place that is designated for the worship of the one true God. No one had ever done anything like that before. He takes it to a whole new level. And again, then he goes even farther. Verse 6, he passed his sons through the fire in the valley of Hinnom. What that's referring to is the child sacrifice worship of the Canaanite false god, Molech. He practiced witchcraft, divination, and sorcery. That's what he did himself. He personally practiced these things and consulted mediums and spiritists, which actually meant that he placed them in leadership and advisory positions in his court. He didn't just listen to what they had to say. He actually put them into places of influence and of counsel. He did a great deal of evil in the Lord's sight, provoking him, I would say. Verse 7, Manasseh set up a carved image of the idol which he had made in God's temple that God had spoken about to David and his son Solomon, saying, I will establish my name forever in this temple and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will never again remove the feet of the Israelites from the land where I stationed your ancestors, if only they will be careful to do all I have commanded them through Moses, all the law, statutes, and judgments. So he completely violates that. Completely makes that covenant null. 
in verse 9, so Manasseh caused, he caused, the king that should be leading his people to God. Instead, this verse says, he caused Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Which is an astounding statement, considering how wicked those nations were. I mean, you think of the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Philistines and all those people. I mean, they were the example of wickedness. But this tells us that Manasseh so corrupted his people and so led them away from the Lord that that they actually exceeded all those people in their wickedness and sin. But God, in his goodness, he doesn't just let it go without addressing it. He doesn't, doesn't avoid intervening. God is good. God is faithful. And look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh. He didn't have to. He wasn't obligated. But out of love, out of being a good father, that's what he did. He spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they didn't listen. So... Verse 11, he brought against them the military commanders of the king of Assyria. They captured Manasseh with hooks. Literally, this means with hooks through his nose attached to chains that they used to pull him along. They bound him with bronze shackles and they took him to Babylon. A dark, dark chapter indeed, right? Dark chapter. What I really want to make sure you take away from all that, all that despair, all that, that darkness, all that example after example of extreme sin, what I want you to take away and to make sure you understand is that no one can live a godly life for you. What is definitely one of the darkest chapters of anyone's story in the entire Bible shows us that. His example teaches us that. As you look at his godly heritage, as you look at what he knew and what he had heard, no doubt, day in and day out, as his righteous, godly father instructed him in the law and in God's word, as he heard the teaching of Isaiah and Micah, as it was ringing in his ears, he had the chance to embrace that. But he, Manasseh, chose personally and completely to reject it. And that teaches all of us, that reminds all of us that no one can live a godly life for you. Faith in God and choosing to serve and honor him are personal choices and commitments and they can't be made vicariously. That means the role and influence of pastors and Parents and grandparents and friends and teachers, it only goes so far. And so does their responsibility. So the question that you have to ask and the question that I raise before each of you is this. Is your faith in God and your walk with God truly your own? Is it yours? Thankfully, Praise God, Manasseh's story didn't end in that, in that dark chapter. That was a long chapter of his story, but it wasn't the whole story, and it certainly didn't end there. So thankfully we can see the comeback occurred in his life. And I want us to now look at that, the comeback of Manasseh, and it takes place in the rest of this chapter, verses 12 through 16 of Second Chronicles 33. So he had been taken away to Babylon in humiliation and in total despair. He's now in this pit beneath some palace and in a dungeon situation. And he's truly at the end of himself. In verse 12, we pick up. God's word says this. When he was in distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and earnestly humbled which is always required 
in order to make a spiritual comeback, just like we talked about last week with David's story, humbling yourself, earnest humility, sincere humility and repentance that's always required to be able to make a comeback before God. That's what we see here with Manasseh. He earnestly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. He looks back over his heritage. He looks back over who God was to his father and and to the kings before them. He thinks of David and he thinks of Solomon before Solomon also went the way of wickedness. When Solomon was at his prime and, and he was seeking God and he thinks of others in his life that genuinely, passionately pursued God in the right way. And he he thinks about that and he humbles himself before this God, the one true God, the God of his ancestors. Verse 13, he prayed to him and the Lord was receptive to his prayer. Isn't Isn't that great? It's beautiful, that statement. Again, he didn't have to be. God did not owe Manasseh anything. God had given Manasseh every opportunity to seek him and to know him, and Manasseh rejected. God did not owe him being receptive to his prayer, but out of God's grace, out of his love, he was. He prayed to him, and the Lord was receptive to his prayer. He granted his request and brought him back to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. So Manasseh came to know, in other words, he he now fully experienced, he personally experienced that the Lord is God. That Yahweh, Jehovah, is the one true God. Beside him there is no other. That's what this means. Came to his senses. He woke up. And after this, verse 14, he built the outer wall of the city of David from west of Gion in the valley to the entrance of the fish gate. He brought it around the awful and he heightened it considerably. He also placed military commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah, which is what a king should do, right? Take care of their people, provide what they need, protect them. And what this shows us is here in Manasseh's experience as he comes to God, this this proves that being right with God enables us to do other things right. It's a natural result. When we, when we have the order right, when God is first and foremost in our lives, then everything else will operate as it should. When things are in proper alignment with God at the top, things will go well in other areas of life. And the reverse is true. We can have things going well in other areas of life, but they will not last that way. They will not continue that way if our relationship is not right with God. Verse 15. He removed the foreign gods, and the idol from the Lord's temple, the one he had himself made, along with all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. Which, of course, shows the genuineness of his repentance. Real repentance always results in action. Real repentance always results in action. It always will. That's going to be true for me. It's going to be true for you. If we're genuinely repentant of our sin before God, it's not enough just to say that we are. It's going to have to result in action, and it will be the natural result. So if there's no change in your behavior, in your patterns, in your life, I'm not talking about perfection. I am talking, though, about going a complete opposite direction of what you were going in and consistently doing something differently. If that's not the case, then you need to seriously question whether your repentance was for real. Because real repentance always results in action. And we see that here on display in Manasseh's life. Verse 16, he built the altar of the Lord and offered fellowship and thank offerings on it. Then he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. This is just powerful. It's awesome to see the turnaround. This is truly an amazing comeback. And Manasseh's miraculous comeback, and that's what it was. It was completely miraculous. I mean, we just saw a few minutes ago how far he had gone, the depth of his depravity, the extremity of his weakness. I mean, there's no one really that can compare to the level of wickedness that he pursued 
and caused others to join him in. So to see this, I mean, absolutely miraculous, and no one but God could do this. And Manasseh's miraculous comeback, it teaches and shows us some really important things. The first thing that that I feel that it it teaches us and it's very important to uh, understand and to apply in, in your life, in our lives, is this, that the only time it's too late to turn to God in this life is after you've left it. The only time it's too late to turn to God in this life is after you've left it. So for those of you who might have been telling yourself it's too late for you or, or you're too far gone, maybe that's true of someone in here. That's the lie you've been telling yourself. Oh, it's just it's too late. It's impossible for me to come to God. He, he's not going to accept me back. You don't know how far I've gone. You don't know what I've done. Well, I mean, we look at Manasseh's example and... I mean, it's going to be pretty hard to top that. And as far as it being too late and you being too far gone, um, you're not dead yet, are you? Well, if the answer is no, then there's a reason for that. If you're hearing this statement, or if you're able to hear any statement, and you have breath in your lungs, you're not dead, there's a reason for that. And the reason is that God is still graciously giving you the chance to turn to Him. That's why you're still alive. And maybe that's not true of you personally here today, but I guarantee it's true of someone in your life. I guarantee you've got a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a boss, someone who feels that, that that's true. That they have lived a life of wickedness to the point where God could not possibly accept them back or receive them. It's just too late. It's too late. There's no hope for them. Well, tell them the same thing. Are you dead? And they'll say, no. Okay, then. There you go. And that's for a reason. God's not done with you yet. And for those of you who have been praying for a family member or a friend, but nothing seems to change. No matter how long you've prayed, no matter how hard you've prayed, nothing seems to change, and you get discouraged, and sometimes maybe you wonder if there's a point at all. Don't give up. God can still change them and use them for his glory. He is listening to the prayers being prayed for them, and he is working. He is working. Don't give up. Keep praying for that person that you've been praying for. If you've stopped, start again. I guarantee you, Manasseh was being prayed for. No doubt. And I can tell you story after story of people that I've known personally or I've heard about that were prayed for for years and years and years and years without the people praying for them giving up. And then finally, when all hope seemed gone, bam, God woke them up and brought them to salvation. So keep going. He is working. He's listening. The other lesson that Manasseh's miraculous comeback teaches us is that our worst sin is no match for the grace of God. Our worst sin is no match for the grace of God. Isaiah 1.18 says this. It's a beautiful passage that totally describes Manasseh and what he found to be true in God's miraculous grace and his comeback. Come, Let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet. He he doesn't dispute the fact that our sins are serious. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. And that was ultimately accomplished through Jesus. The power of his sacrifice far exceeds the power of our sin. No matter what we might have done or do, it will never be enough to out-sin his sacrifice that does what is promised in Isaiah 1.18. And Manasseh experienced that. And he welcomed it. And he embraced it. Have you? Is that true of you? Have you received 
that work of God through the Lord Jesus? I hope so. And then, the last thing that Manasseh's miraculous comeback shows us, as far as something significant, there's other things that we can draw, but as far as the major, major lessons that we can take away, it's that God can use the person that was farthest from him to bring others to him. God can use the person that was farthest from him to bring others to him. And we see that in Manasseh's comeback story. That was the result of him finally coming to God. God used him to do the opposite of what he had done by bringing people to God rather than leading them away from him. That's what he had unfortunately done for most of his reign. He had corrupted Judah and and we saw the word. It said he led them away and seduced them to evil and he caused them to do such evil that they exceeded the nations around them that God had drove out before them in their sin. But now, as Manasseh comes back, he does the exact opposite and he brings them to God in a greater way than they had experienced before. My friends, that's not limited to Manasseh. That's not limited to other people that we read about in the Bible. That's real and that's possible for any of us to experience the same thing. And I want you to now hear from one of our own longtime members. I want you to hear about her experience with the power of God's grace and how he can completely turn around any life that turns to him truly. Some of you have heard my testimony before. Um, But I just want you to keep in mind that this is really a testimony of God uh, in my life, but it's God's testimony. The hardest thing about sharing my testimony today um, is letting go of my pride long enough to admit that I am not perfect, that I am a sinner. It's easier to confess some sins than others, but sometimes we come into church on a Sunday morning, uh, we try and pretend that we're perfect that everything in our lives is perfect. Sometimes we look at others in the row next to us and wish, if only my life was perfect like theirs. But we are all imperfect. We are all sinners. But I didn't always know that I was a sinner. I was born and raised in a good moral family in northern New Jersey. My parents loved my sister and my brother and I. They worked hard and they taught us good morals. But we weren't a Christian family and we didn't attend church. I was a good girl, as far as anyone knew. I spent a lot of time alone, hiking in the woods, um, just thinking there must be a God, or there must be a power, or something. But I didn't know who or what that was. The only religious influence I had in my life uh, were some cousins who were Catholic. And all they did was complain about going to the Catholic school they went to, and how they had to go to confession every week. And I can remember thinking, what in the world do they confess about every single week? I just, I couldn't imagine, you know, I couldn't think of anything I needed to confess. After all, I was a good person. In my teen years, I was mostly a quiet honor student. My friends and I would hang out on weekends, often drinking. My goal at that time in my life was to be accepted and to fit in. My parents were very trusting of me more than they should have been. They really had no idea what I was up to. Then at the age of 17, I found myself pregnant. I was in denial for nearly two months, thinking this couldn't be happening to me. I felt that I couldn't tell my parents I didn't want to be a disappointment and a burden to them. I finally went to the only place that I knew of for help, and that was Planned Parenthood. They were in our public school every year telling us of their services, free birth control mostly. They confirmed that I was pregnant. In my mind, this pregnancy was a problem that needed to be solved, not a human life. And I thought my only option was an abortion. I rationalized that there was no way I could have a baby right now. I was going to be a senior in a few months and then go on to college. A baby would be a serious inconvenience, as well as a huge embarrassment. 
Planned Parenthood gave me the information I needed to call to schedule uh, an appointment at the abortion clinic. But they told me nothing about any other options that I might have. I managed to keep this a secret from everyone except for my best friend because I needed someone to drive me to the clinic. After I had the abortion, life went back to normal for several months. When the time came that the baby would have been born, I had some brief remorse, but then quickly buried my emotions and began building walls of protection. I continued on with life. At the time, I was more embarrassed for having gotten pregnant in the first place than upset about having the abortion. I went on to my senior year of high school, continued hanging out with the same friends. Then I graduated and went on to college. I soon met Don, and we began dating. Don was not a Christian either, uh, came from a similar family background as mine. About two years after we met, we got married. About five years into our marriage, we decided we wanted to start a family. And we were thinking it would be a good thing to raise our children in church. Looking back, it's obvious that God was directing us because we had no religious influence in our lives and no reason to think that church would be a good place to raise our kids. So we started attending a local church, made new friends, got involved. It was a friendly church, but not a Christ-centered church. And they barely preached from the word of God. But we were ignorant to any problem that this presented. I soon got pregnant and life seemed good. But about eight weeks into my pregnancy, I started having problems. My doctor sent me for an ultrasound. I watched on the screen as the technician showed me the baby's heartbeat. It was too early to see the form of the baby with the technology at the time but you could clearly see the pulsing of the heartbeat. I stared at that pulsing heartbeat and went into shock. It was at this point in my pregnancy that I had had the abortion. At this point, the full effect of my abortion overcame me. And I realized that this wasn't just a problem that I had needed to solve. It was a baby. For the first time, I realized it wasn't an inconvenience, but a living baby. I went home and collapsed in tears. Prior to this ultrasound, I had given no thought to the idea that I had chosen to abort a living baby. In my mind, I was just getting rid of a problem or an inconvenience. When I saw that heartbeat, I realized that I had taken the life of a living human, and I fell apart. About a week later, I had a miscarriage and lost my baby. I was convinced that God was punishing me. I felt overwhelming guilt and shame. But a few weeks later, I once again stuffed my emotions down deep, and Don and I got through this difficult time together. At the time, Don knew about my abortion, but no one else, not even my parents, still knew. We continued on. About a year later, I got pregnant again. We were still attending the same church. An evangelistic crusade was being planned in our community. And as leaders in our church, we were recruited to be counselors. Of course, we weren't saved and had never even heard the gospel ourselves. But we went in ignorance to the training anyway. After the first counselor's training, we felt very uncomfortable and stopped going to the training. Looking back, we know it was conviction of the Holy Spirit. But Don still sang in the choir, and we attended every single night of this week-long crusade. We both heard the gospel for the first time. I was 25, and Don was 27. We were both convicted that week that we were sinners in need of a Savior. Don came down from the choir and I from the audience for the altar call. I didn't understand it all, but I knew Jesus had died for my sins. No sin was too bad, including my abortion. I knew in my head that God had forgiven me, but I still continued to have guilt and shame 
because I had trouble forgiving myself. We changed churches, started attending a gospel-preaching, Christ-centered church. And over the next seven years, the Lord blessed us with four wonderful children. I knew the Lord was blessing us, even though I felt I didn't deserve it. Don and I learned the Bible through our church, as well as, uh, as we read Bible stories to our children. We continued to grow spiritually. After several years, I started leading women's Bible studies, and Don was active in uh, music ministry. We spent our summer vacations at the Word of Life Family Campground in upstate New York. Those weeks were wonderful family times as well as much learning in God's Word. Eventually, the Lord directed us to attend the Word of Life Bible Institute and then Appalachian Bible College. It took me nearly 20 years after my salvation to be able to share the part of my testimony that included the abortion. Though I knew that God had forgiven me, I still struggled with shame and guilt. The Lord has been teaching me that pride was what was keeping me from sharing. I was afraid of what others might think of me. I was afraid I might disappoint someone. And I am still reminded by the enemy of our souls of what I did and often return to that guilt and shame. But then I quickly remind myself that I am a child of the living God who has forgiven me and has promised me eternal life. God is faithful. The choices I made all those years ago have affected nearly every day of my life since. I have lived with the consequences of the guilt and shame. I've gotten really good at putting up walls of protection and hiding and burying the emotions deep. We need to consider the consequences of what we do. And remember that our God is a forgiving God. We are all sinners. Many of us here are forgiven sinners but we still have a tendency to make wrong choices. We also tend to rate sins on a scale from bad to worse. Many would rate my sin of abortion to being close to the worst end of the scale. Some would label it murder. Others, however, in our culture might not think it's so bad. Legally, murder is wrong and usually not tolerated, but abortion is legal. And in so many ignorant minds, because of that, it can't be all that wrong. The hard truth is that abortion is taking the life of an unborn, innocent child. There's three truths that I have discovered through this journey, and especially the last few years as I have been sharing my testimony. The first is that the truth is that God does not rate sins from bad to worse. He sees sin as sin. They are all offenses against him. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Second, we have all stumbled and are guilty. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sins are all choices of disobedience. I may not have known the Lord at the time of my abortion, but I knew what I was doing was wrong. Otherwise, why would I have kept it a secret? And third, our God is a forgiving God. Romans 5.28 is a verse that shocked me early in my Christian walk. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I still can't get over this verse. Christ died for my sins, even my sin of abortion, long before I ever knew anything about him and even when I could have been considered an enemy of God. I still sometimes think that I'm a failure because of my sin. I can never be perfect this side of heaven because of the mistakes I've made, and the sins that I've committed will never go away. I can't take them back, and I can't have a do-over. But in Christ, I am not a failure. God has forgiven me, and he can still use me. I am a sinner saved by grace, And I am so thankful for a forgiving and faithful God. Thank you so much, Debbie. And maybe maybe her story specifically resonated 
with your heart in some way, in some fashion. Maybe it reminded you of something that you have been ignoring or hiding in your own life. I I don't know. What I do know, though, is what Debbie experienced, we all can experience. It's available. And I want to give you that opportunity um, to respond however you may need to respond to, to Manasseh's story and to his comeback, what you heard there, what you heard from Debbie. However God has spoken to you personally today, I want to give you the chance right now, not just when you go home, uh, when distractions come in, but I want to give you a chance right now while all of this is fresh to respond however you might need to. And I know that we don't typically use these steps as altars where we lay down ourselves and we lay down our, our guilt, we lay down our sin. We, we don't do that really. Um, and that's fine. We don't have to do that all the time. But I want to just give you that opportunity today to make this area your own personal sanctuary before God and your own altar that you lay down whatever you need to lay down. You don't have to. I'm not going to force you. But let me tell you, there is something powerful that happens in our lives when we actually physically respond and physically respond to what is uncomfortable. God does something with that. He uses that in us when we step out of the comfortable and we we step into what is, is awkward and a little out of the ordinary, but there's something special, not magical, but something special that happens when we do that. So I just want to give you that opportunity. Um, I think we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and, and just do that. I'm going to pray, and then I'll give you a chance uh, to respond, and then we'll be dismissed after that. You can come here. Uh, I'll be available if you want to talk, if you want me to pray with you. Uh, certainly, though, if you don't come out and, and come down on the floor here, Certainly, pray where you are, okay? Uh, At at least do that. There's not a one of us here that should not be impacted in some way, in some fashion. And there's not one of us that doesn't have something in our lives uh, that we don't need to be giving to God this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of Manasseh. Thank you that he is such a vivid picture of what you can do with a life that responds to you. That no matter how great the wickedness and the sin was in our lives before coming to you, when we turn to you, you are there and you are ready to respond to us and you're ready to receive us and you will forgive and cleanse us of all of our sin No matter how high that pile is, it's nothing for you. And you will make us new, you'll make us clean, and you'll use us then to bring others to you. Thank you for doing all this through your Son, making this possible through your Son, Jesus. Because he did come, and he did go to the cross, and he did die for all of our sins. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet received that amazing gift of salvation through your son Jesus, let this moment, this time now, be the time of their salvation. For those who are already yours through through Jesus, they've already given him their life, but they've held on to past sin and they've not truly fully believe the fact that when you say they're forgiven, you mean it. That when you say in your word, you have removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west, they need to really believe that. Or maybe still others, they're saved, but for the last period of time in their life, they have been choosing sin over and over. They've been habitually returning to that which Jesus paid the price to free them from. Whatever the case may be, let Manasseh's comeback story, let Debbie's comeback story, be the story that is written on our hearts today for the first time or to remember that it's already been written and to return to it.
Work in our hearts, I pray, by your Spirit in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, let's have a time of prayer. You do whatever you need to do before God.
Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your incomprehensible forgiveness. We thank you that not one of us has it all together, but that's not what you require. You don't require for us to have it all together and all fit in beautiful ways and perfect fashion. That's not what you require of us. And and it's such a good thing because none of us could achieve that. What you require is for us to recognize that you are the one that has it all together. And you are the one that will put everything together as it should be if we will let you. What is required is for us to come to you in sincerity, in humility, emptying us of ourselves so that you can fill us with yourself. And I thank you for your constant grace and work in that way each and every day. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning and all through the day. Thank you that you look at us as a father with a child that understands who we are and what we are and what we are not. But thank you for not leaving us in our weakness and in the dirt, but constantly molding and shaping us after the image of your son and constantly picking us up and helping us to go forward all by your work. Help us to respond to that work and respond to you. Help us to be repentant people. And help us to invite you to use us to bring others to yourself. And as we tell others about our own comeback story by your grace, may they come into experiencing that as well. May they see you write a brand new story on their hearts as well. We commit all of this to you and ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.